and welcome back to Demotate, the music podcast which hits rewind on some of the bands and scenes we've loved. Welcome back, Rick. Yeah, welcome back, Sarah. It's been, what, nearly a year now since we, we dropped a podcast? It has. It's been, yeah, because we last dropped a podcast on my birthday last year, so the 9th of December, and it's coming up to December now, so I, I, it's crazy to think that it's been a year, but just to introduce ourselves, if you haven't listened to the podcast before and you're brand new to this, um, I'm Sarah Kemp and this is Rick Martin. So Rick is an ex-enemy journalist. He was uh, there for about a decade. Is that right, Rick? Yeah, for my sins, yeah. And uh, I'm, well, I'm with this, we're the same age, basically, but uh, we met a few years ago uh, through work and realised that we'd been in the same kind of places and same times with the same bands um and I used to do a lot of blogging and and uh, just was very much into into the music scene um very much on the other side of Rick so it was interesting that we've kind of met up and and forged this partnership yeah thanks for the recap because yeah again it's been so long since we've done one of these that I think I'd probably half forgotten what our story was as well so probably I think first of all for those listeners who have heard us before we probably owe a little bit of an explanation as to where have we been? I mean, it's been a fairly quiet year around the world, hasn't it? So, you know, there's not been not been a lot to talk but sort of talk about, has there? Yeah, well, I guess like going back to my birthday last year, I was actually struck down with a, an illness that looking back, I think probably could have been coronavirus. Um, I was so I was the most ill I've ever been in my life and it took me a long time to recover. And I think we were always going to have a bit of a break anyway between series, but probably didn't realise, you know, how big a break it would be because... Obviously, March came around and completely through not just us, but everyone else in the world, didn't it? Yeah, and I, I didn't really know what place music played for me during the pandemic. I think in time, and we'll come on to this later on in the episode, you know, it became a kind of a real place of solace for me. But that's not how I kind of felt initially. It's funny, I was talking to my partner about kind of when coronavirus first came in and the way my mind works is I almost think of sound effects for things and when I think of those days where one minute we were working in an office the next it was you're going to work from home it's like when you stood on a train platform and a train that isn't stopping kind of whizzes through and you kind of feel like that for me is a metaphor of how all, all that felt and yet I think although a lot of people have found during kind of the pandemic's given them more time for hobbies and more time for sort of projects for me the last thing I think I really wanted to do in March, April, May, was sit down and talk about music because I just didn't know how I felt about it. How, how about you, Sarah? I mean, how, how, did, how have you felt during this time? Yeah, I feel like music's definitely got me through it, but I, I had another, kind of got into another project that I was doing. I've been doing for, well, I had been doing for a couple of years before that, which was encouraging people to drink a bit less. And I think it really resonated around that time because there were a lot of people who were struggling with their mental health. You know, it was a really tumultuous time for people. And I personally, myself, I'd noticed that I wasn't really going through the best time and it really shook me up a lot. So I did another project um, and then kind of, it went on a few months and then towards the end of lockdown, I kind of fell off the wagon and I'm definitely drinking a lot now, but um, it's fine because I'm okay now. Um, But at the time I kind of wasn't okay. But in terms of music, I I think- I think, I think, I think what I would say, Sarah, just to interrupt you there is, don't downplay it. I mean, you made it all the way to Five Live and uh, Adrian Childs' show, didn't you? Exactly, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was on the telly quite a few times. So I was on BBC News in London. Um, yeah, it was, It was. yeah, thank you, Rick, for that For that reminder. Yeah, it, it got picked up by, by media because it was such an important thing, I think, for, you know, we were building a community for people who not necessarily wanted to be sober, but what kind of really wanted to 
to drink a little less. And our, our concept was, you know, two drink limits. So you go out and, well, you go out or you kind of stay in or whatever it was at that time. And you can have a couple of drinks, but you should stop there because um, there's no, nothing good to be had necessarily if you're not in the right state of mind to continue drinking. Anyway, I'm definitely not uh, following that at the moment. And as I said, it's because I'm a bit better than I was. And um, I think if I ever go back into that sort of bad kind of mental state again, I will know exactly what I should be doing. Something else we should probably mention is, although we said at the top of this we haven't been doing demo tapes and music podcasting, we have been moonlighting as a presenting duo, haven't we? Do you want to tell the story or shall I? <laughs> I, th- I think you should tell the story because you were the one that decided we should tell the story. So, yeah, I guess what we've probably not mentioned on previous demo tapes are episodes, but if you join the dots enough, you've probably worked out, is Sarah and I do have a day job outside of this. This isn't what we do 24-7. We do work at the same place. We're not going to say where. It's probably quite easy to find on LinkedIn. And we work in marketing and comms and content. And, uh, yeah, around the time of lockdown, internally, they launched an internal podcast, which obviously us having huge experience in doing that decided we put our our kind of hands up and and sort of go forward and the way I was comparing this to uh Sarah earlier and this is a niche reference but I think if you know if you get it you'll get it back in Neighbours in the late 90s when Toadie was like a sort of student character Toadie who's still in it now the legendary uh you know Rebecca character he used to present on uni FM which was like this radio station just for uni students and I guess that's what essentially we've been doing in our day jobs for for an internal audience yeah, and, you know, I we both love it. So it's fun. It's very different subject matter, obviously. But, you know, getting out and talking and interviewing people. We love interviewing people. So it's been it's been quite nice to be able to continue this in some form um, over, the, over the lockdown in the last few months. But we've got a guest on this week. Uh, very excited to be, get, you know, getting back out there and interviewing musicians again. And I just wanted to ask you, Rick, why we've got the same person on. Because we've had this person on before haven't we so do you want to do the big reveal of who it is and and talk me through that yeah it's tom clark uh, formerly of the enemy and you're right yeah he came on an episode about a year ago to talk about kind of his time in, in the enemy you know a multi-platinum number one selling band and then some of the things that kind of happened to them after that and this this episode this follow-up today is not about all that it's actually we're, we're changing the format a little bit and pressing fast forward i know we say at the top of the show we press rewind but fast forward on his career so in that interview he was telling us about how he'd recorded this like new solo album his first solo album called the chronicles of nigel he was kind of in the middle of it and i was just i don't know about you sarah but i was so intrigued that it sounded so different that i said to him at the time look when you finished it come back on the show and we'd love to kind of talk to you about it in a little bit more depth and we've kind of delivered on that we've got an in-depth um extended interview with tom um, later in the episode that yeah we're really kind of excited to share with you it's it's a really interesting one yeah definitely it's a good follow-on from from the last one as well I agree but before all that I guess we should talk about our year in music now you know there's a lot to cover here so I'm sure we'll kind of some of this will trickle out over different episodes but I guess kind of top line Sarah we've, we've been away for a year what you've been listening to during that year yeah, so actually at the beginning of lockdown, I created a Spotify playlist called uh, Corona Get Through This. And actually, I look back at the name and think, hmm, interesting. But one of my really good friends, uh, Jason, hi, JC, uh, told me that I should call it that. So I did. And I'm very impressionable. So I listened to him. But basically, I've been shazamming anything I've been hearing, whether that is, you know, even if I know what it is, I just shazam it. So it's an easy way to get it on my Spotify playlist. But been listening to the radio a lot, been watching a lot of films, um, kind of music's coming from here, there and everywhere. But some of the big 
um songs that i wanted to kind of pick out on there there's things like you know omar there's nothing like this you've got um a lovely amazing like brazilian jazz uh, song on there with uh, from uh, stan getz and it's a song called desafinado and it's just so lovely and smooth like liquid gold mm, mm. um and then you've got you know mozart with lacrimosa the walkman the rat Eminem, sing for the moment because I love Aerosmith and Eminem. So that was just a really, I heard that and I was like, that's definitely got to go on the list. Um, and then a really awful, horrible, dirty dance song. I don't know how I got on there, but it's quite hilarious. Um, and it's called Local People. And it's just, just a very eclectic mix of songs. And I kind of put it on when I walk out the house now and have to have a chuckle because I remember where I was when I heard these songs. And, you know, it goes from classical music to rap to... To, to 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 indie um so it's good i wonder if we should kind of um make it make it public so people can access it we should definitely create a playlist of these yeah but yeah i mean there's about i think there's about 400 songs on there now so it's not a small playlist let's say that wow i mean i was going to say is, is there any kind of common theme running through these but from what i'm hearing it's like some of it's the security of stuff you've loved in the past yeah. is there anything new on there that you kind of heard during lockdown that was kind of brand new and well, a lot of the a lot of them on there are brand new. So one of the, like I said, the, the Brazilian jazz. I mean, I love Brazilian jazz. And I love world music, and I think we've talked a bit about before um, how I love Giles Peterson and how he sort of got me into all of that stuff. But I'd never heard that song before. I don't actually remember where I heard that or where I shazam that, um, which is annoying because I like to have a memory of where that was from. But definitely new. Um, and even some of the classical music I've got on there was new. And I must have heard that in films. And yeah, I've been watching a lot of films, as I'm sure a lot of people have. And I'll just kind of pause it, rewind it and make sure I shazam it. But just actually what, going, going back to probably one of the most memorable moments of the summer. It's not a new song, um, and, but it's an absolute banger. And it's Jay-Z, Big Pimpin. And one hmm. of the highlights is because it got to about three o'clock in the morning. Me and my two housemates and my boyfriend having a bit of a house party because that's all you could do this year. And um, the mood was getting a bit flat. And then my boyfriend just goes over and puts this song on and we all just liven up and just like bop around the room and just go completely mental. And for me, it was a really lovely memory um, of the summer. So I just want to say hi to Abby and Robbie as well, because thank you for making that such a good memory. So how about you? Uh, I know I, I can imagine what's going to happen. You're going to talk more about albums and songs, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, you know me too well, don't you? And yeah, I've definitely not been having uh, any house parties. That's, that's the kind of the contrast in our lives. And yes, albums have been the big thing for me this year. And I'd also say probably a lot less eclectic than, than your taste. But yeah, I thought I was going to call out kind of three new albums I've been listening to this year. I think a bit like you, it was a mix between the new and the old and some of the old classics that you go back to as kind of a bit like a, a comfort blanket, I guess. In terms of new music, yeah, there's been some really good stuff out this year and I wanted to kind of call that out. So, number one, and anyone who knows me knows I've been banging on about this band, anyone who's spoken to me over the last six months, but the Orioles, who are a uh, band from kind of Halifax, Yorkshire way, like the kind of towns between Leeds and Manchester. And I discovered this album, Disco Volador. I think it was on Pitchfork or one of the review sites. I kind of, one of those bands, I knew the name, but I probably did, couldn't name too many of their songs. I kind of knew what they sounded like. And, uh, yeah, I, I just completely fell in love with this album. It's a really kind of eclectic sounding kind of mix of kind of classic indie, but with kind of samba influences. Um, I guess a real ca sort of clash of styles. There's a lot of disco on there, uh, maybe as the name kind of uh, kind of hints at. And uh, yeah, we're trying to get them on a future episode, actually, because it'd be really good to kind of talk through some of their musical influences and kind of better understand that album, because that's the other thing I would say that 
during lockdown, I feel like the whole kind of music journalism industry, it's it's got a collapse in on itself. You know, Enemy obviously closed its print edition ages ago and, and is a bit of a faded force online. And then Q, you know, I was really sad when Q closed um, during this time because it, it's probably the best Q has ever been. And I still read Q in the same way I used to read Enemy. Like, what album should I be listening to this month? What how did a band make a certain album? You know, and I'm not saying there's no music journalism going on out there, but there's a real kind of, it's a lot narrower now, isn't it? Definitely. And actually, it was funny, I, I did an interview the other day um, with a band, we'll talk about it in a bit, but um, one of them was like, oh yeah, Enemy is just clickbait now. And I think mm. it's really sad, isn't it? And, and there is just nowhere, really, where do you go now to kind of read about your, you know, the upcoming things? I mean, I guess you've got the supplements in the papers, right? But I don't really know. I don't really know. I never really trusted the people that were writing those supplements in, in terms of music. I don't know why that is, but um, yeah, mm. I, I, you know, on Instagram, I don't really follow any music music on outlets on Instagram or anything like that. So it's really just a case for me of, of finding about things organically or recommendations or, you know, which is quite a sad thing, I think. Yeah, I guess I hope that our podcast in a way is one place people can get tips for uh, for new music and I guess continuing with that second thing I was going to mention Doves so not a new band you know obviously a classic Manchester band who you know released their first album I think it was 99 2000 time and you know Lost Souls that was one of my favorite albums and still is kind of of all time and then they came back with their first album and I think it was 12 13 years of Universal One and it's kind of not like they've never been away you know not a huge shift in sound kind of do that grandiose kind of magnificent kind of uh big indie sound if you understand what I mean um and there's this track on the album called Carousels where they've said in interviews that they kind of tried to use the studio as a production instrument like it's it's as much about the layering and the sampling in it as it is the guitar so really interesting kind of track for them to come back with and I recommend listening to the whole album because it's really really good and uh yeah I guess a final the final one I'll I'll call out is by Gum G-U-M uh, out in the world so um Gum is Jay Watson who was in Pond, who are kind of an offshoot of Tame Impala. I may have gone on about that kind of whole Perth scene in Australia before on previous episodes. So I guess the great thing about if you're a fan of Tame Impala or Pond is when you're waiting for an album by them, there's usually an offshoot or a side project that someone's come out with. And yeah, Gum is the, is the latest one. And it's fairly sort of straight electro pop, big choruses, huge electro sounds, quite danceable. Um, yeah, re- really kind of worth a listen. Um, the title track out in the world's really good, kind of really sort of psychedelic. And I guess what the the common thread that I think runs through maybe the Orioles and Gum is they're really kind of summer sounding albums. Like while during lockdown, I've got back into running. I know you ran a marathon. I'm nowhere near. Uh, in fact, you've run two marathons to my mind. I've run three actually. You've run three. Okay. Um, I'm nowhere near a marathon runner. I'm at the um, you know the half or quarter or eighth marathon stage. Right. Let's let's say that. But um. You know, during that, that's when I listened to a lot of new music. And I definitely remember during the summer months listening to stuff like the Orioles and Gum. And almost, I now kind of can put myself, almost have like places associated when I was running with with those songs, uh, particularly the sort of fields near, near where I live. And it's it's quite weird now. If I walk around there, I can't not play those tunes in my head as I'm going around. So it's weird how music you can start to associate with places, isn't it? Yeah, and places. But as you said, feelings. Well, you didn't say, but I'm going to say feelings. Because when I was doing marathon training, I was listening to a lot of kind of cheesy dance music that was coming out at the time that really kind of got me going. I think I've talked about this before. But um, now 
I, I really love listening to that music just without even running, because for me, it's associated with that running runner's high feeling, which is just some, like something you like nothing else that you can get really. Um, mm. So yeah, music is music and feelings and music and, you know, taking you back to, to place you've been is definitely a thing. I think something else I wanted to talk about as kind of a theme of this series, and then we'll kind of get into Tom's interview, but I think maybe this kind of, this sort of starts to tee that up a little bit is around, you know, how the music industry has had to evolve during the pandemic and actually how it's in a really sort of hard time. And I know I was telling you this off air, I'm actually quite passionate about kind of the role of music fans at the moment in supporting artists. You know, this is the bleakest time I think it's ever been to be in, in a new band or, you know, I'm sure if you're Bono or you're Alex Turner, you're fairly insulated from it. But anyone who's sort of below that level, not able to tour um, all year, you know, gigs being pushed back. And, you know, even I imagine recording in studios is probably quite difficult with social distancing and sort of things like that. So that's something I, I, I kind of am interested in to know how you feel about that and, and whether you kind of agree with me that this is a real time for music fans to to give something, I think, give something back to the artists and sort of scenes that they love. I think you'd be a weirdo if you said no, right? Because I think, you know, I, I know a lot of people in the music industry and I've seen a lot of kind of suffering and struggling going on over the last few months. And it's really, really sad to see that, you know, people who got into industries because they're so passionate about their their art have now all of a sudden been told to go and retrain in something else. That that to me was one of the, you know, the saddest things that came out of lockdown was, you know, that, can you, can you remember that infographic and that graphic that came out around you know, the ballerina looking to retrain? Um, mm. And it's kind of like, how dare you? <laughs> um, you know, this country is built on its culture and it's, it's, you know, it's sad that people aren't going to be able to continue doing what they love. So you absolutely, it's like, you know, another passion of mine is food. I'm continuing to support the restaurants that I love by buying their takeaway, you know, services that they're doing during lockdown. Um, and it's really important to, to be able to continue, you know, helping them because that's how they're going to be able to survive and not even thrive, but survive for the time being. So, yeah, I'm completely in agreement with you. I, I, it's interesting you say you make the comparison with the food industry there, because, again, I mean, I'm, I'm by no means a foodie and I guess I'm more of an F in terms of football, so food and football. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I, I think there's two types of, of football fan, or maybe three, you could say. You know, there's those who just support a club, your Man United fans, your City fans, Liverpool fans, those who don't follow a club, you'd actually be surprised how many football fans I know that don't have a club who I'm internally taking the piss out of to say, well, who do you cheer for when they score, right? And then you've got people who are a bit in the middle. So they support a football club like me with City, but they also follow football, you know, all the way down the divisions. And, you know, when matches come back in a couple of months and they, would, they did come back for a few months during the summer, I think it's so important if you care about football, if you care about the fact that half the England team did start out in the lower leagues and, you know, Harry Kane had numerous loans down in the lower divisions, those teams could disappear if fans don't actually get, get out and go and support them. So on a Saturday afternoon, it's a choice between watching Liverpool on TV or going to watch a Charlton Athletic or a Folkestone or an Ashford United or wherever your local football team is if you're a football fan. I mean, this isn't the, this isn't the platform for it, but I do think there's parallels between lots of different industries about if you're a fan of something and you've got money in your pocket to spend, go and do it. With music, for example, bands are playing virtual gigs. The Orioles are doing a virtual gig in a couple of weeks. Will it be as good as if you're in the venue with a pint in your hand? Of course not. Is it important that you support the band? Give them that tenor to go and watch that gig or download that EP, but you know, pay for it rather than you know illegally downloading it or whatever. I do think it's important. I agree. 
off my soapbox. But enough of that, enough about us. Um, Shall we start talking about the real star of the show, who is Tom from The Enemy? Absolutely, yeah. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier on in the show, you know, we said, can we get you back on when you finish the album? And I got a text uh, probably about three weeks ago now saying, the album is done. We'd love to kind of have a chat with you. And uh, we were really lucky that Tom sent us an advanced copy of that album, The Chronicles of Nigel. And we've had a couple of weeks to kind of live with that and sort of listen to that. And um, it's always an interesting one when you kind of agree to an interview with someone before you've heard the album. You think, God, what if... Well, if this comes through, what if you don't like it, <laughs> if you don't like it, yeah. And the other thing was when I first, you know, when Tom gave me a call a couple of weeks ago and we were sort of planning the interview, he said, "Just to be, just to prepare you, it's very different. You know, the enemy. This is not. This is not loud, punky, fast, huge choruses. This is a and the, the, those scary words for any music journalist. It's a bit of a concept album. It's a bit of a story. It, it, it tells a tale from kind of start to finish. But um, I'm pleased to report, genuinely." It's a brilliant piece of work. And I don't know about you, but I was so surprised to hear, I guess, the the depth, not just to kind of his, his voice and the way that he sings, but the music and the way that he can tell a story. Yeah, absolutely. And you teed me up before I listened to it and you said it is definitely very different. And I didn't realise how different you meant. So when I listened to it, I was so surprised like really pleasantly surprised actually because I sort of went in there I always go in for something with a bit of a I'm a bit of a cynical I'm a bit of a cynic so I was thinking I'm not sure what this is going to be like to be honest um but you know even on the first song I was just like okay yeah I want to hear more I want to hear more and that as every song kind of continued I was like yeah I'm really really enjoying this like it's it is very musical I think and it did remind me of a musical and I know he talks about you know, having written a musical, um, but it, it, it's very cool and I really liked it, yeah. So I think let's not give uh, sort of any more of it away. Another, I guess, warning we should flag up at this point is if you're one of those people that likes to listen to an album first and not kind of have spoilers as to what's to happen, you might want to go and listen to it first, but otherwise, you know, dive in. We're going to tell you the full story of the, the kind of, of the chronicles of Nigel, the musical influences and what Tom's been up to. So shall we, shall we get him on the line? Let's do it. So on the line, I've got Tom Clark, formerly of The uh, Enemy, for side B of our kind of demo tapes interrogation. You were on the show um, a year ago, and a lot's changed in, in that year. Kind of how's lockdown been treating you first, other than making this new album? It's been, uh, it's been a massive negative and a massive positive, I guess. Um, the, the negative is, uh, for someone who spent a, a lot of time and had a lot of help um sort of dealing with anxieties and going out and and sort of dealing with social interactions and stuff it, it's the entire world changing overnight can uh, can throw you a bit um the positive um and I think the, the net positive of it is that not being able to gig which is obviously another negative um you know just in terms of income and paying the mortgage but also i think I've not really appreciated how much I really enjoyed gigging. So that's a positive in a sense as well, that I really am missing gigging and can't wait to go out and do it again. And, it, I, you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever felt so lucky to have the job that that I've got. And, um, and obviously, whilst I can't gig, I've been making music, which is something that I haven't really had the will or the incentive to do for the last five years and all of a sudden been sort of sat around twiddling my thumbs going who am I what do I do 
mm. and I'm going to do music, let's do some of it. It's interesting there you mentioned that kind of relationship between the live and, and the kind of recorded side of being an artist. You know, you're the first artist I've interviewed since lockdown and for this series and I guess I'm interested to know, you know, we've we've said in the past, I think, you know, it's kind of been generally accepted, great art tends to come out of adversity. Some of the hardest times in this country's history, great music has been produced. The difference this time is those artists can't go out and gig it. They can't trial it on the road. They can't try songs out at sound checks that then become singles, which become albums. So I guess from an artist's point of view, you, you've touched on it there. But yeah, I guess how, how difficult has it been to be solely focused on the recording studio rather than having that kind of sounding board of, of the live stage? I think I think for a lot of artists, um, go you know going out and doing it live will probably be a big part of their process. For me, kind of the opposite. It's if I can go out and gig live and and across doing that and and sort of get my emotional expression done doing that, I don't have the need to to make music and and making music, as we touched on in the other podcast, for me has been quite a a stressful affair over the years and so I've not really been in a, a rush to get back to it. Um, I, I don't think this particular album is um, is as a result of lockdown because we started I started work on it a long time before um, but certainly the follow-up, um, the, the record that I'm working on now um, is because there is nothing else to do. I've just finished making a record, I can't go out and gig it so let's just keep going let's keep making music and um and it's kind of like it's how i music's how i deal with stuff it's how i process emotions and um and if i can't go out and sort of do that live then it forces me to to do it this way and you reference there this has been it's been quite a while since the last album you put out you know the enemy's final album it's automatic but also by my maths if you think about it you've only had one album out in in eight years you know in terms of the, the album before that would have been 2012 up until nigel so and it's not that you haven't been busy during those years and you, you know you've done a we'll live and die in those towns these towns musical you know you've ghost written for artists but i guess i was interested to ask you from a point of view of you know a lot of the last five years i guess to the outside world has been you um, I guess celebrating some of the things that happened elsewhere in your career, like the enemy, you know, building it out into things like a musical and a little bit less kind of forward thinking. So they were kind of backward thinking and building things that you'd already done. So what was the switch that flipped where you went, no, actually, I do feel ready to write a, a solo record and I do feel ready to, to do something new and, and fresh. Where did that, where did that come from? Um, it was around the time that I was working on the musical there were a lot of new things um, in my life. I just just got married the week before, um, and we we came back from uh, from the south of France, and immediately uh, I was thrown into uh, this musical, and I hadn't got a clue what I was doing. I was musical director on it. It wasn't I hadn't put the whole thing together. I'd just been brought in as musical director, and I I kind of I was in this new world, and I think when you have life-changing events like getting married, inevitably you feel like you're at the start of a new chapter. Or I, I don't know, I, there was just a, a new sort of confidence of, okay, I, I've tried this musical and it's going well, um, and, uh, and then people enjoyed it. And the whole time that we were in rehearsals, 
I think, to be quite honest with you, the people that I was working with on that musical are some of the most creatively brilliant people I've ever worked with. And being surrounded by them um, just really sort of kicked me into gear, particularly Jeff, who wrote it, who's, um, you know, Jeff's a, a BAFTA-winning writer. He used to work in a factory and he used to work the doors in Cov. And one day he decided he could write and he just wrote and he's won awards. And mm. it, it, it kind of reminded me that that you you can do anything. I know it sounds cheesy and I, I know he always used to say it around the time we all live and die in these towns, but anyone can do anything if you put your mind to it. And really the only person that you're answerable to is yourself. If you're happy and proud of it, then that's all that matters. And I'd spent a long time in a world where you were answerable to the charts, to the media, to fans. And I just was in a place where I thought, I don't, I, I almost don't care about any of that. I just want to make something that I like. And being around all those people gave me the confidence to do it. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that because, you know, I think from our from our last chat, and we're not going to go over all the, the ground of the enemy, if listeners want to hear side A, listen to the end of this and then go back and have a listen to that. You know, it's there in the, in the demo tapes archive. But, you know, I, I suppose what did come across in that interview, I think, was, you know, you did feel quite constrained by the time you were at the end of the enemy. You know, you'd basically been told to write, um, you know, um, away from here kind of mark two, which, which to you is for a songwriter like yourself, isn't that hard to do? You jig a few of the chords around, you 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 come up with a big shout, a big chorus, which is kind of your trademark, uh, and kind of you're away. But I imagine working on this, it must have felt very different because those constraints were gone. You were like you say, you were only answerable to yourself. But did that? Was there a flip side to that? Is it is it? Are you one of those people that can find it hard to get that creative spark if you've not got pressure on? Is 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 it 100% one way or the other? Um. I don't think I work well under pressure, to be quite honest with you. And I think it's why I'm not a good fit for the music industry. And I I, I know I'm quite anti-industry, but I've actually got a huge amount of respect for creative people that can exist in that industry and, and still make music, because I, I can't. And it's not a it's not that I'm better than, than that or something. It, you know, it, it's just that I think it is the pressure that I don't respond well to. And it, it's... Um, it sounds noble sort of going, oh, I don't like to uh, to monetize art. But in, in reality, I, I just don't, I don't do well in that that sort of situation. And again, Jeff, who, uh, who wrote the musical, said something to me around that time that rung true, which is that if you chase the money, the art will always suffer. But actually, if you just concentrate on the art, quite often the money follows. Mm. Um, but... I mean, where I was at was a completely no-pressure situation. I hadn't put any music out, as you say, for you know one record in eight years and nothing for five. And so there was no ex- there was no weight of expectation there. And my bills are paid by going out and playing live, so there was no financial pressure of, oh, I've got to make this work, or what do I do? I, I didn't have to do it. And so I just did it because I wanted to. Um, and I think I think that's why it worked. And I'd like to kind of go a little bit more into to the album, The Chronicles of Nigel. Obviously, we'll, we'll get into some depth here. Listeners, strap yourselves in. We're, we're going to go quite deep into this. And uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough. You sent me kind of an advanced copy last week, and I've been I've been living with it a week. But in reality, I've actually been living with it a year because you talked about it in the podcast a year ago. Um, you said it was going to be very different. 
you said it might surprise a few people, and I, I can definitely confirm, having heard it, uh, you know, a dozen times in the last week, that's definitely the case. So do you want to, I guess, for those who who've maybe have forgotten that interview, or just to kind of give a bit of refresher, who is Nigel? Where did he come from? Something to do with an XTC song, for maybe who haven't heard of them. Can you just kind of give us that outline of, of, of who he is and where that inspiration came from? Yeah, and we should probably say spoilers at this point as well, because if we get... If we're going to get into it and uh, discuss the story, I know there's some people who probably want to discover it on record for the first time, but I actually think I think this could be a really good companion to the record anyway. Um, Nigel first came about in 1979, before I existed. Mm. Um, and it, a, a band called XTC wrote a song called Making Plans for Nigel. I'm not an avid XTC fan. Um, I came across Making Plans for Nigel at some point around probably 2007-2008. The band XTC spent as much money on the production of Making Plans for Nigel as they did the whole rest of the record that it's on. Mm. Um, and, And it just immediately when I heard it, it just sounded like a masterpiece, and I became a little bit obsessed with it. Um, Very ahead of its time, wasn't it? And you listen to that, yeah. you know, you hear where kind of bands like Franz Ferdinand built a whole career based on on that kind of post-punk sound that came out in the late 70s, right? Yeah, I, I think it was really transitional um, for the time. It was um, it was bold and, and brave, and it, it pushed the envelope um, in terms of what bands like XTC had been doing. But it, as well as sonically been really really fascinating and interesting and and quite inspirational it had this really quite dark um intriguing social commentary to it It, the song's essentially about a a character in 19 it's it's from the perspective of a a mum and dad talking about their son's future and how it's all good it's fine his future is sorted he's going to go work for british steel um and so, you know, all's good. He's, he'll love that. And it's a job for life. In the time when people had jobs for life. And mm, mm. and um, the reality in 1979 is that the writing was sort of on the wall for the, the British steelworks. And a lot of the, the British manufacturing industry. Um, and so it, it's kind of, it's written with this, this positive sounding spirit, but with this knowing irony in there as well. And it, as a, as a sort of a social commentary around a fascinating time in Britain, it, it just kind of it just ticked all the boxes for me. Sonically brilliant, pushed the envelope, and then had this amazing dark social commentary to it. And so I, I was sort of slightly obsessed with that song and kept thinking about Nigel, the character in it, because by the time we, the enemy, were making our second record, we were being asked an awful lot about politics and social issues and um and i i mean it was it it got on your nerves towards the end it certainly got on the nerves of your bandmates didn't it we yeah definitely i mentioned that yeah without going over overall ground yeah i think you know it was the politics has always interested me but i i i kind of was working out whether it should even have a place in music um, or at least whether it should have a place in my music. 
Um, and Andy was vehemently against it. He just was sick of people. He's not in the slightest political and was sick of people asking him about socioeconomic issues and things that he didn't care about. Um, and, uh, and fair enough. But in 2009, um, Warner Brothers listened to the second record and said, can you go and write another Had Enough? We, we really want another Had Enough, um, which had been, I think, our highest charting single at that point. And I was like, yeah, I can. And went and wrote the music very quickly. And it, it was almost a carbon copy of, of Had Enough. The song was called Be Somebody. But in terms of subject matter, I decided it would be interesting to explore a character called Nigel, who was at the same point in his life that XTC's Nigel was in 1979. But to compare and contrast that with the realities of 2009, Mm. decades on from when the manufacturing and industry disappeared from the country and so in be somebody nigel's a young lad you know he's 18 19 years old and he's he's got a job working in a department store in sales which is what my generation did we worked in shops we didn't make stuff you know we didn't train as miners or or as car builders we, you know that was that was all going and so we we worked in retail and that's what mm. nigel did I, I, I must say, just to pause you there, I did wonder whether there was any link between, and you probably think I'm totally overreading this, but XTC are from Swindon, which is known for car manufacture, and obviously you're from Cov, which is known for car manufacture, but both have kind of been hit by declines in that sector. Is is that a happy coincidence, or is there anything in that? Yeah, I, I think it's a coincidence, but it, it's an easy coincidence because a, a lot of sort of provincial places in the UK used to make stuff and. And no longer do so i think you can kind of throw a dart at a map pretty much anywhere in britain and say oh yeah they used to make that and they don't anymore mm. um but yeah so in 2009 it, it was kind of just i created this nigel there were no plans for him i just thought let's see what he's up to and he was going out getting drunk at the weekends falling in love with a local girl and generally doing what my generation did which was sort of sex booze football and retail I mean, I guess we'll kind of talk about some of the other characters a little bit um, later on, and we, I want to go into some more depth of, the, of kind of the story. But I also kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about the name Nigel itself. I mean, it's quite a striking name to be going out with now. You know, I think I think I read somewhere that no one born in 2016, I know this is set in 2009, but no one born in 2016 was actually called Nigel. It's an Irish name that means that means champion, but it's definitely a name that's kind of fallen out of favour. So was there any temptation i know you wanted to stick with the same character but was there any temptation to update that to an oscar or a dylan or you know whatever's at the top of the the kind of name charts at, at the moment um it sounds incredibly wanky but i don't think i had the choice he was just mm -hmm. nigel and from the moment the seed of the record was planted of what's he up to now it would it it was always going to be the same guy that was in Be Somebody, and he was called Nigel. And, it, it, you know, he was called Nigel because Nigel in 1979 was called Nigel. And, I, I mean, it's I think it's a really cool name. I think it's um, it, it evokes a sort of a, a, a sort of a British tweediness of a, you know, you can't, I can't imagine many sort of sexy, suave European types being called Nigel. Yeah, you know, it's got that sort of grayness to it. 
when I think of famous Nigels, I think of kind of Nigel Godrich, who like produced Radiohead albums, Nigel from EastEnders, and Nigel Martin, the goalkeeper. So do you, which famous Nigels spring to mind for you when you think of the name Nigel, other than obviously this character from your own album? It's got to be Mansell, uh, the, the Formula One driver <laughs> um, from the Midlands. Absolutely brilliant driver. And um, I'm a bit of a petrol head, but if, if anyone else is, you should go and watch some interviews of Nigel Mansell because he's a, he's a bit mad. I mean, he, there's something strange there, but it's also fascinating. So in terms of the, the album, it'd be good to kind of go into a little bit more, I think, of the story of, you know, we've set up this character. We know kind of firmly now who, who Nigel is. Um, and I think you mentioned on the last episode where you kind of touched on this you said you know he's things go pear-shaped for him quickly you know there's Nigel and his his wife Shelley and we'll come on to maybe why fans might recognize that name and the pair his parents Bob and Sue but can you give without I guess without giving well we've kind of given the spoiler warning so I guess you can give some of it away what I wasn't going to do is give away the ending I think we should probably leave that for listeners but you know it's probably fair to say over the course of the album um things don't go so well for him. So how, how would you kind of sum up the journey that Nigel goes through across this album? I, interestingly, to touch on the ending first, which seems logical, um, hmm. the, I don't think there is an ending. I think it's uh, almost a Sopranos-esque type situation where it's it's open for discussion. And I'd, I would invite people when they've listened to the record to tell me how they feel it ended, because I don't know, there's a... There's a you know, a couple of different ways it could go. Um, the, the story itself is, um, is um, it, I mean, it, it, I don't think it's an uncommon story in sort of, in, in modern life, but Nigel, several years on from 2009 to be somebody, Nigel, has married the local girl. He's had a couple of kids that were unplanned and has slipped into this, this sort of totally um, normal, but but not not planned um, family life, where everything appears fine, and he's got himself a house and a car, and he's doing okay. He's not working in a shop anymore. He's um, there's a lot of specifics that are missing from the record, which are gaps that hopefully people will fill in. But in my mind, they're already filled in. Um, mm. You know, so in my mind, he's a PE teacher. Um, but he's, um, you know, he's sort of climbing the ladder and he's now got the, the combined income of having a wife, but also the expense of kids. And But he's sort of, um, he sort of finds himself in this lifestyle that he didn't choose, he just fell into, which I think is reality for a lot of people. Um, and uh, he, um, he sort of goes out, on a on a work night out on his uh, on his birthday one night, and has a few, and encounters something that he's encountered and probably resisted many times and other times not managed to resist it. But he encounters lust and um, and essentially he he fails to resist it. Well, he either fails to resist it or he chooses to embrace it, um, and. Um, and goes down that road and um, at the peak of it he he believes he's in love um, it's, but it's not reciprocated it's 
it is simply a a sexual exchange for the the subject of his lust and love um and he is found out and it, it sort of comes home and and then he has to face the fallout of that and the, and the moment it comes home and he realizes that he's facing losing everything it it becomes so obvious to him that actually he was happy with what he had and he now really doesn't want to lose it um it's that classic grass is grass is greener tale right exactly um and so now he's a man who a moment ago felt unsatisfied with the life because it wasn't what he'd chosen who's now just desperate to cling on to it and and not lose his his family his wife and his kids but but they're gone and um and it becomes apparent to him that they're irretrievably gone when his wife, who throughout the years has put up with a lot of shit, um, decides that actually, before she was married, she was quite open-minded sexually and had sort of dabbled with girls and has decided, Do you know what, I'm just done with men, this, mm, this repeated yeah. behaviour of men. She's just done with it. And so she um, finds herself in love with another woman, um, at which point for, for Nigel it becomes really clear that this has gone wrong and he can't fix this. Mm. And he's just coming to terms with that when an invitation to a family do comes through the letterbox. And it's, uh, it's I think, some. I mean, I've had them, but I, I would imagine everyone has at some point where you just get an invitation to something at precisely the wrong time. Yeah, uh, literally the last thing you want to go and do. And obviously in, in this case it's... Uh, it's a wedding, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's a family wedding. And it, it doesn't say who, but it almost doesn't matter. What it does is it forces all of the characters in our story into one place at one time. Hmm. And we have to jump back a bit because early on in the record, we're introduced to Bob and Sue, which is Nigel's mum and dad. I was going to say, yeah, I think, I think what's interesting there is that there's a real intergenerational juxtaposition that you've put in there with, with them. Um, Sorry to interrupt you there, but I think it's important when you say Bob and Sue, there is that is a bit of an Easter egg for 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 fans of kind of bawdy eighties, seventies, I think seventies British kind of uh, comedy. Do you want to explain yeah. who Bob Sue and Rita is too? Yeah, so uh, Bob Sue and Rita too is an amazing film, um, and uh, it, it's kind of it, it's a it's a a nod of the head or a doffing of the cap. Um, it, it's a, like I say, I think it'd be late seventies or early eighties. Um, it, it's so British, but it's about a bloke who has a, an affair and fucks up his whole life. And um, and it, it was always in the back of my mind because it's executed so perfectly and and written so well um, that I, I wanted to sort of sneak in there that it had been on my radar and had affected me whilst um whilst writing this it's something that I've, it's a film i've loved for my whole life um but yeah bob and sue um in the chronicles of nigel context are nigel's mum and dad and um and they are sort of your archetypal happy couple they're the blueprint for when relationships go right 
they're introduced very early on. It's track two on the the record. They're old now, um, probably beginning of retirement age. Um, and they're in a relationship that since the birth of Nigel hasn't been physical. Um, but it's no less loving for that fact. Well, you say they're happy in their way, right? Yeah, which is... I think it's quite, it's quite a loaded statement, isn't it? Well, happy in their way is a nod to uh, Nigel in XTC's song, Being Happy in His Work. Um, yeah. And yeah, they are happy in their way. They're... they're um, it, I mean, in a sense, you could say a sexless marriage is unconventional, but I suspect that in reality, sexless marriages possibly are the convention. Um, by the time people have had kids and got to that age, um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'll let you know when I get there, if I get there. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the lyric in, um, in the track is, Sue said after Nigel came, something fundamental changed inside. And I think for a lot of couples, that, that is a reality. But it also doesn't signify necessarily the end of the relationship. For, certainly for the, the generation that are older than us. I think a lot of them just saw it out. I think, you know, there were there were people who grew up in the in the fifties, and they perhaps didn't place the same value on on sex. You know, if you if you formed your lifelong relationship before the summer of love or before the fallout of the the, the summer of love and the social revolution that came with it, then maybe you place your values in a different place to where today's generation does. Mm. For whatever reason, um, Bob and Sue are happy and there's no sex. And it's made clear in the song that Bob's content with that, that he just respects that something changed inside Sue. She's not a sexual being anymore, but he loves her. He'd never cheat on her. He'd never Mm. go elsewhere. And they are that, that perfect couple of, uh, a generation of past of a, of a bygone era who make it work with or without the physical side of it mm. and so what they represent to Nigel from the very beginning of the record is how to have a successful marriage even throughout challenges and even throughout sacrifice and compromise how to stick together and um, I think it's important they're on the album actually because it gives it context like you could have sketch Nigel out and just had it you know the Chronicles of Nigel would suggest this is just about this one character but I do think without that as the backdrop without that as you know often uh, and we're going a bit pop psychology here I think but you know if you want to know why someone's messed up you often just have to look at their childhood and what they were influenced by as parents right although apparently we're all messed up now we're getting really pop psychology about it but if you didn't have them there as that backdrop you maybe wouldn't understand some of the things that Nigel then goes on to do right because he's seen his dad in a, in a in a loving marriage, but he's probably you know I guess he's probably to some level aware of the things that his dad doesn't have, so maybe that's why he does end up going to stray because he thinks well I don't want to end up like that. Yeah, and I think to a certain extent he probably compares his relationship to theirs, and um, both favourably and unfavourably. So he doesn't want to end up in a relationship where he has to compromise too much, which is why maybe he goes astray as he feels that he's forgotten who he is and and it, you know that that feeling of falling in love and that passion 
that he feels he's not quite ready to to have a relationship without that. Mm. And at the same time, he must hold the success of their relationship in high regard because it's difficult and it's taken work and you know they've they, they've stayed together and in a sense set an example for him. Mm. Um, be it you know positive or negative, but they are, as you say, the backdrop. Um, and so when he and all the other characters find themselves near the near the end of the record forced into this one place this this family do um which he doesn't really want to be at. he's on his own it, it forces him to confront the end of his relationship because his now ex-wife is there with her new family that's completely alien to him and 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 he feels excluded from that um but he's at this point he's he's still got some hope whether it's from within him or not he's got the hope which is the example set by his parents which is that with enough work you can overcome the the the, the difficulties of any relationship um and you can have a happy ending um but in the situation that he's in, he's just completely overwhelmed and, and just can't process this. It's all happened so fast. His entire life, has, his world's fallen apart and his, his life's changed. And whilst there's still hope, he just can't confront it there and then. So he sneaks out um, and uh, sneaks out onto a sort of a, a rainy British seafront. And he's... Um, He's just trying to escape the party at that point is all he's doing. He just needs to get out there and he it's quite candid in that he admits he tries to drive home pissed but the, the car won't start. And um Well he's not capable of starting the car. I no. mean he's probably <laughs> so pissed that even turning the key is difficult. Yeah. And so he, he ends up strolling down this seafront aimlessly, semi beaten at this point. Um, but having escaped the situation, um, when he encounters a, a figure, a sort of a shadowy figure, which, as he gets closer to it, he realises is the unmistakable figure of his mother, Sue. Mm. Um, and she's performing a sex act on someone who isn't Bob. <laughs> now, that is the most repressed way I've ever heard someone describe a blowjob before. <laughs> Performing a sex act. What, were you at a police interview or something? Eh? <laughs> yeah, she's um, she's partaking in fellatio with someone other than her husband. And um, for Nigel, this is a final straw. It's, it, you know, that symbol of relationships that can work and how you can overcome lust and how he's made a mistake but he's learned from it now and it, and and this i think at this point also the feeling of free will you know that that his destiny wasn't preordained through genetics or upbringing or something else that he was his own person and he's made his own mistakes all of this is challenged and essentially thrown out the window when he discovers that his mum who apparently has been a sexless being for his entire life isn't and has been lying to his dad and this, his entire life has been deceit or the example that he's 
been set doesn't exist. It was all deceived. Mm. Mm. And, um, and so that is kind of where we leave Nigel. Um, we leave him, as the narrator on the end of the record says, in the most cliche way possible, standing on the end of a fucking pier. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I mean by the ending isn't written because the final words on the record are you take care of Nige make sure he doesn't do anything daft and at that moment I kind of hand responsibility of Nigel and his future and what he does next over to the listener which I've done before on, on track three when the narrator issues a warning to the listener to not encourage him, but obviously the, the listener's powerless to do anything about it. Mm. But it brings into question, is the listener at the end of the record still powerless to do anything about it? Or, or you know, what, what do people think he does? And, and I, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. Um, I didn't want to overthink it myself. Um, there was enough to overthink on that record. <laughs> Listeners, when you've had a listen to the album, do email into the show, demotatespod at gmail.com, with what you do, uh, think what you think happens next uh, with, with Nigel and indeed the other characters. I guess, taking a step away from the story and the characters for a second, I guess I wanted to talk to you about some of the broader themes on, on this record, because I think, you know, particularly that moment where, you know, that horrifying, I can't even really begin to imagine the horrifying thought of seeing your mother doing that on a beach when you're pissed after a wedding. But, you know, for me, I think what that may be cemented for this album is it's, it's a lot about repression, sexual repression, the, the kind of what, what it means to be kind of monogamous. And you've also made, across the album, some quite interesting, very British sexual kind of references in there, things like Reader's Wives, which, you know, is kind of a 80s, 90s. I, don't, I would never know if they even sold that sort of stuff anymore because... Who goes into news agents and buys porn mags or whatever? But um, <laughs> no, I think this is a very British. The, the, the references to sex on this are very, very kind of British, and that rep, that kind of theme of of repression and what's going under the table that you don't really know about. And is is that what you were trying to get across, or have I have I misread it in some way? Totally. We um, nothing on this record is by accident. It's. Um, we had months of conversations before I ever recorded a note, before I ever put pen to paper. We wanted it to be achingly British. Um, one of the briefs for this was, if Americans understand this, we've failed. Um, and, and the British are weird about sex. We are weirdos and have been throughout history for forever, I think. Um, you compare us to Europe, who are incredibly open and and and, and broad-minded, and you compare it to compare it to the way Americans date. You know, where it's a it's a much more relaxed attitude to sex. We are uptight weirdos, but we're also complete freaks. We love sex, probably more than Europe and probably more than America, but we're just so strange about it. And I. If we didn't get that across, I think we would have failed. Uh, and do you think, you know, this is obviously set in 2009, but you think that this is something that afflicts modern couples as well? This is something that's, that's, that these these themes are going to be universal, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now. Yeah, although to touch on that, I don't know when it's set. It's 
because Nigel in V somebody was 2009, and this is Nigel further on. Mm. Uh, but as to when it was set, I don't know if that means it's set in modern day. I, I imagine it and imagined it as I was writing it in the sort of Bob Sue and Rita 2 era. I don't know why. It just helped as a creative tool. Um, but it, it's sort of this, just this postmodern, could be any year. Um, but I think it's, I think it's totally relevant today. Um, I think, I think we're maybe more uptight than ever, to be quite honest. Um, in respect of our generation, you know, I, th- I remember, I remember being in my early twenties and just being weird about dating. Um, <laughs> I, I could say something vulgar now, but I um, I remember a contemporary in another band saying to me once. And I'm going to try and work out who this other band is. So carry on. <laughs> I'm not going to say who it is, but um, I remember him saying to me, "I've got so little confidence when it comes to women." I can be in bed inside a girl and still not know if she wants me. (laughs) (laughs) But to me, that just epitomises our inability to communicate effectively when it comes to sex in Britain. It's so strange. We're we're an island of weirdos. And I think that the, the next generation on, I don't think they even chat people up in bars. I think it's all done online. Um, on, on apps, yeah, the normal way to meet someone now. I mean, I I met my current uh, partner and mother of my fourth child um, on Tinder. I and mean, people ask us now, how did you meet? I go, well, we met the normal way on Tinder. We're not, yeah. we're not one of those weirdos that started, <laughs> I started trying to chat a stranger up in a bar. I mean, what do you think I am? Like, you know. It was an analog dating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I think, you know, and I, I think because of that, we're, we're more afraid to approach people and just communicate than ever you know we're, we we have to communicate through these devices and those devices have now set rules and norms and, and they guide you they they tell you how to write a bio about yourself mm. and that I find that strange in and of itself it's kind of it it removes a lot of the questioning of who am I and um, that, that figuring out who you are that you do in your late teens, early 20s. And and I, I don't know how that will play out for the next generation. I don't know how it will affect birth rates or relationship failures and successes. I, I think it will be interesting to see. But, yeah, it, to answer the question, in a modern context, I think we are more repressed and more weird than ever. Mm. I mean, dating's almost become like marketing, hasn't it? And I know you've got a bit of a bit of a background you've done a bit of marketing on the side of kind of music industry and my background is also marketing and I won't lie when I was on tinder meeting my partner it was a complete marketing project you know you think about your your visual creative your strap lines you know it's 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 all you know your customer engagement when you get a match and how you deal how you take them through the funnel through to conversion it's it's exactly the same isn't it that's that's kind of what dating has become it's it's a marketing mechanic mm. And I wonder, I don't know the answer, but I wonder whether it's disingenuous. I think most people's attitude towards marketing is that it is slightly disingenuous communication. It, you know, it, it serves to oversell or to coerce. You know, that I would say they're the purposes of marketing. And, and like you say, the, the overlap of that and dating is now very real. Mm, mm. 
Well, I guess one of the elements of the album I wanted to talk to you about, you know, you, you brought before that there's 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 a wedding in there, and I suppose a wedding is something that is the same now as it's always been. You know, people still blow far more money than they can ever afford to on, on these sorts of things. And I think for me, this is one of the best and definitely the funniest tracks on the album is this RSVP that you kind of referred to before. And it's very recognisable, you know, the complaints about the bar being too expensive, um, you know, being having your ear chewed by an uncle at the bar because you've gone on your own. And I guess I was interested to ask, I mean, this these, these sound like the lyrics of someone who's definitely been to one too many sort of bad wedding so did you have any specific ones in mind you don't have to name the poor couples unless they unless the wedding unless the marriage kind of crashed and burned anyway and they wouldn't care but yeah what was there anything you specifically had in mind when you were, were putting this together uh i just hate all weddings apart from my own mm. uh, the the idea <laughs> the idea that i should go to a pre-organized place and experience happiness for somebody else <laughs> And, and the fact that they found someone that I have absolutely no interest in, who mm. is probably going to force the person that I like to compromise as a friend or a person that I respect. I just I resent every time I'm invited to an event like that. Um, and it, it's kind of, I mean, I've experienced a wedding of my own now, so I understand why they happen, um, but I still always and I, I don't think I'm alone in this when I get an invite to a wedding particularly if it's not a close friend I just think oh mm, mm. I've got to go and put on a happy face and pretend I'm super happy for you I don't give a shit I don't, <laughs> I don't care that you've decided you're just going to shag this one person for the rest of your life I, I, I or whatever the reason is I just I, it's such a personal thing and I kind of at my wedding expected everyone that was there to feel the same and i don't know if they did i suspect hmm. some, of them, some of them probably did but i mean it's, it that is the i think the true experience of a wedding is a bunch of people some very happy some stood around asking do you think this will even last and some just thinking oh why am i here i've got to spend all this fucking money at the bar and I, you know i don't want to i'd I'd rather be somewhere else spending my money or or my time or mm. I've, had to get, I've had to buy a suit for this. Like, and you've had to buy a suit and you've not even been invited to the day bit. You've just been invited for the couple of hours at the end so that you bring a present along, right? Yeah, that's the, the bit I love. You, you, it was just a, it was an exchange. You know, they paid 30 quid for you to attend and you brought 50 quid's worth of stuff so they were 20 quid up, you know? Yeah, it, exactly. It's just I, I can't be the only person who sees weddings and especially the 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 night do and, and and when you're just invited to the night do um i can't be the only person who, who sees it in this cynical way <laughs> or may, maybe i am but yeah it, i find them very weird and and in rsvp you know it's the guy nigel is just invited to the night do and they try and excuse it by saying you know we know we know you don't like churches so in a sense we thought you'd do we thought we'd do you a favour. But they then go on to tell him how absolutely fantastic the catering was and how he missed out. <laughs> yeah. You always hear it was a great meal when you don't go to the day bit, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and that's the probably the best bit of getting drunk at a wedding. By ten o'clock most people are done at a wedding, right? Yeah, it just sort of descends into uh into sort of family dysfunction, doesn't it? It's um, mm. Mm. it gets worse and worse and worse and the smart ones get out. 
in a sense, I guess Nigel's the smart one for trying to duck out early, although it, it doesn't end doesn't end well for him. Mm. You've made reference that you obviously you're married now, and um, you, I guess, famously, infamously, famously proposed to to your now wife Kate on stage at the last enemy gig and that's going to be you know there for posterity on youtube kind of forever so i guess i was interested not many people have heard the album yet myself and you know a few of you kind of you know your close friends and family but i wonder how how did kate feel when she heard this you know and i thought you were um, going to ask how are things working out <laughs> <laughs> well no I'm, i mean we, we we were going pop psychology and and all that sort of stuff we won't we won't go that deep this isn't um this isn't jerry springer but um I guess I'm interested because the album, you know, it does show that you've got some fairly cynical views about about weddings, you know, and, and some of the realities of what's going on in relationships. So how did, were you nervous about playing this to Kate to say, oh, let's, this is actually how I feel about um, British relationships and weddings and that sort of thing? Or could you divorce the two? Well, this is my life over here and Nigel, Nigel isn't me, Nigel is a character, right? I think um, the reason that Kate and I work is because she's at least as cynical, if not more cynical than I am, <laughs> about <laughs> almost everything in life. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if she'll thank me for sharing this, but when we first got together, we did so on the basis that good relationships last generally a maximum of two years and that we should get together for two years um, and then sort of reassess <laughs> because that's normally when you get bored. Mm. <laughs> but um, we, uh, it became, it became apparent to me that for practical and for romantic reasons, although I wouldn't say religious because neither of us are, for practical and romantic reasons, we wanted to be husband and wife, and um, it's we, you know, we did that. I love driving cars really fast around racetracks and there's a high chance that one day that will go wrong. And when that does go wrong, I'd like to know as I'm taking my last uh, breath in a Clio sport, that, <laughs> that um, Kate will be, I mean, not all right. I'd hope she'd be absolutely devastated. I mean, I'd like her to be at least a bit depressed for a few months. Hmm. Um, but, 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 <laughs> I would like to know that from a practical and legal point of view that, you know, what was mine will become hers. And marriage is a very easy way to achieve that. But oh, you old romantic, you, eh? <laughs> well, <laughs> Make sure all your stuff goes but, to her. There was romance as well in that I'm incredibly proud of Kate. And, you know, Kate, people use the expression better half. I really think Kate is my better half. I know she is. And uh, for, for very selfish reasons, it makes me feel very proud and very good about myself <laughs> when I tell people that I'm her husband. Um, and I don't know if there's romance in that sort of uh, weird, um, weird take on it, but for me, it means more to me than anything I've ever done in my life, than any platinum discs or any awards saying that I'm Kate's husband and that's why we got married and the, the two the two are divorced I mean you know Nigel's a teacher with kids and, and it, it it's very much a fiction that was imagined not even based on people I know 
just on societal patterns that I saw. You know, Nigel is an amalgamation of lots and lots of people that I see and things that they go through and experiences that they have. Um, and he, I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't even really write him. I didn't, I didn't create the character. He just created himself. Mm. You know, Gaz, who's my best friend and also was the, effectively the creative consultant on this record. Every single idea was bounced off Gaz and came back with a yes or a no or an alteration. And we very quickly worked out who Nigel was. We went into detail that wasn't even required. We, we know things about Nigel that aren't on the record and that won't be on the subsequent audio book because um, or, or, we're writing a, a full script as well. But we had to do that because I had to know exactly, precisely who he was in order to know what decisions he would make. And so he, the character was just created on feel. You know, it was just, we'd be driving back from a gig and I'd be saying, right, where's he live? Uh, all right, one of those sort of Barrett homes, you know, the sort of the, the, the really the really boring sort of, you've been to my house. <laughs> well, it's funny you mention that. I've listened to this album doing walks around my new, my new build estate that 10 years ago was just fields. And now uh, because of the uh, government's help to buy scheme, um, not to get too Phil and Kirsty on the listeners here, but you know, if you buy a new build house, the government gives you a big loan towards it. So yeah, probably quite a good backdrop for listening to this album again, because that's exactly where I've been listening to it. Yeah, it's if you if you manage to get on the ladder, these are the places that our generation lives, and so that's where Nigel would live. And you know, I said, what well, what does he drive? Well, he's got kids, so he's got an estate, but he's also a bit aspirational, so he's probably got an Audi estate, but it'll be wrecked because he's got kids. So it's covered mm. in mm. top box from camping trips and it'll be full of biscuits. You know, it was a nice car once when he got it, but it's not mm. now. And, you know, it, we, we went into crazy amounts of detail to figure out who this guy was before we figured out the journey he was going to take. Um, and so he is a, he's a complete fiction, but I also think in many other ways, he's a complete reality because Mm. you know he he bears so much resemblance to such a chunk of society today i'd like to sort of take the chat in a slightly different direction now i guess we've talked a lot about nigel and shelly and bob and sue uh you know you've nearly had me in tears talking about about your wife so i think we should probably move on from any of that before you know two grown men are, are in tears on, on a podcast and you know you probably play this to her every valentine's day now that you told the world or a uh, very small section of that world, how, kind of how you felt about it. But I guess I wanted to talk more about you and and the music on this album. You know, um, we'll put the kind of characters to one side for a second. It's really kind of the musical side I want to learn a little bit more about. And, you know, when I first listened to it, obviously I knew there was a story and I knew I was trying to kind of figure out and piece together what was going on. But I was also listening to it thinking this is very different to, and you, you said this last year on the last episode, it's going to sound different it's going to surprise people but maybe I even I wasn't quite prepared for what a departure this was from kind of you know the big chorus indie punk you know um fast loud aggressive kind of enemy sort of stuff so um how determined were you to kind of leave the enemy for what it was and really kind of spread your sort of songwriting wings because I think those who know you are those who've met you before or 
know a little bit about your background, know that you are, you know, you, you are classically trained in terms of you can play the violin, you can play the piano. You had a lot more to you than that, the punk sound that, that took you to a multi-platinum album. But how determined were you to really show that on this album? And do you think it will surprise people when they when they hear it? Is that fair? Um, yeah, I, I, I think if people are expecting to tune in and and it sounds like the enemy, then they're in for a shock, but hopefully not an unpleasant shock. Uh, it was part conscious decision and part necessity. Um, I didn't do it just for the sake of it. The, the music is instrumental in telling the story. The, there are times on the record where a song sounds the way it sounds because I'm using the instruments to paint a scene that it would be clumsy to paint with lyrics. Um, a, a good example is at the end of Readers' Wives and the beginning of RSVP, as that invitation you know, has gone through the letterbox and lands on his mat and, and Nigel realises what this is, it's an invitation to an event and everyone's going to be there. There's terror, there's pure terror. Now, I can write that in a lyric um, I can make it rhyme. I can probably do quite a good job of of getting across that feeling, but I can do a much less clumsy job of that by by arranging the music in a way which subconsciously, because of the way that film soundtracks have been written for decade upon decade, mm. the bit of you that knows, oh, this is suspense and dread and fear mm. and you know the the quaint string arrangement of readers wives sort of simmers off into into reverb and becomes more and more distant and this low atmospheric grumbling which is a, a trill on a cello um takes over and becomes all consuming uh, and it's you know it's it's nigel getting tunnel vision and, and anxiety and and you know i can't do that with three chords and a telecaster mm, it mm. was completely necessary for me to to sort of remove all of the the barriers to that expression you know if i'd tried to make this record as just a guitar record it would have been impossible or or, or just not as good but to carry on on that theme a little bit, just to rewind a little bit, you know, the start of the album, I think, particularly is quite striking. It's quite sombre. And I think when you know the story of, you know, Bob and Sue being kind of happy in their way, if it was kind of um, party music or if it was, you know, if it was more upbeat, it wouldn't fit with the story you're trying to tell. You're trying to tell quite a realistic story. And, you know, I guess I was even hearing, and this is where I'm going to throw some inspirations, a bit of Burt Bacharach in some of those Loads. opening tracks. Um, yeah. But you know, who, for listeners who haven't, you know, who, who haven't listened to this yet, if they've got round to this before hearing the album, whoever would have put "Away from Here" with Bert Bacharach, you know, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't it doesn't compute, does it? So, um, is, is that is that kind of a fair comparison? Is that is that someone you 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 know you've been a fan of or you've listened to? It was a reference. So we we did mood boards at the beginning of this where um, we um, I, I sort of jovially said no one's written a song properly since the 50s <laughs> but, but in a sense you know that there is a an evocative style of writing that's far more dramatic um that 
that that songwriters back then used to tap into and everything's become a lot more formulaic mm. Bacharach was absolutely one of those um one of those songwriters who wasn't afraid to go right and now we'll just have a flute section you know or, or something great mm. because that's what the song needed and it's it's a it's sort of you have to detach yourself from the music that you're writing because if you think oh this is outside my sound then you're being a little bit narcissistic and you're mm. kind of going oh this doesn't sound like me but this record wasn't about me it's about nigel and his character and his story and you know that the first track remember when i hope sounds like a sunday afternoon in someone's living room i hope it's got all the the familiarity of that and the comfort and the warmth and the the boredom and the mm. you know it, it it stays but there's also then where it goes when we we start to bring in the strings and the the strings rise is you know nigel's rising emotion he's sort of woken up with a paper on his lap and a half drunk pint next to him and shelly's mm. in the kitchen doing the dishes and and he in the again there's a, a lack of detail in the record there's dots for people to join and, and colors for them to fill in but mm. in the in the detailed version of the story he spots a, a photograph of him and Shelley when they were younger um, on holiday in, in Spain and and he remembers what it was like falling in love and you know in the photo they're young and he's got his arm around her and he's so proud and it just on this random Sunday afternoon it just makes the hairs on the back of his neck stand up and mm. and he remembers what it's like to be in love and realizes that they've slipped out of that but that she's the same person she's just in there only mm. now mm. she's asking if he's got any empty glasses and yeah yeah and it's gone and, and it's become familiar and it's that's where the seed is planted really for him that the, the question of is he satisfied with that you know or does he miss that that feeling of being in love because i don't think anyone can deny that there is nothing more life-affirming than falling in love and, and it being reciprocated and he just he just tweaks it on a rainy Sunday afternoon. Mm. It poses the question for him, and as that question sets in, you know the strings rise, and the music becomes more emotive as he remembers a more emotive. Hymn. Yeah, yeah, and I guess another musical reference I'm going to throw at you that I heard here was a bit of Scott Walker, specifically Scott Walker, where the sets or some of the same touch points. I think the Last Shadow Puppets picked up on some of their material. I'm not saying this. Sounds like a, in any way kind of a copy of that, but I think there's maybe some. I definitely heard you were maybe listening to some of the similar influences as as Alex and Miles kind of way back when. In the cowboy bits in Partners in Crime. Yeah. Yeah. So th there is. I mean, this is entirely sort of interpretive. It's one of those where if I didn't tell you, you wouldn't know. But we decided relatively early on the way that Nigel deals with difficult situations is he imagines that he's a cowboy hmm. and so <laughs> when, 
he slips off into these fantasy lands and you can hear him almost do it again in oh sue what did you do does that 60s film vibe and he's almost slipping but he mm. keeps torn back to reality in that but partners in crime is pure fantasy it is him with his shirt off on a horse in a desert that doesn't exist riding off into a fictitious sunset with a, a maiden that he's just saved it's mm. it, it, so the reason that we you know the reason so the track that follows it ooh la la the, the idea was to juxtaposition the fantasy and the reality um of his affair mm. and so the, the the mechanic that that i used to do that was to to place the fantasy in a place that that has no it makes no sense on the record you know mm. this we're in this familiar house now we're in a pub okay we can feel that why are we now in the wild west uh, it's because we're in nigel's fantasy land where he's clint eastwood um mm. Mm. i think in terms of actual musical inspiration there <laughs> rather than the great score writers of those westerns i think probably subconsciously the the musical influences that i picked up on are whoever wrote the soundtrack um parts to red dead redemption <laughs> <laughs> now that's a game i can't get into i've tried to get into that recently and i've, I've given up on it because it's too boring but anyway that that's that's probably for a for, a, for another podcast i think what's a really interesting musical centerpiece is is kind of don't need nobody else um for a couple of reasons it's a duet with um i believe grace ackerman um and i'll kind of i want to come on to a little bit about who she is because she's an emerging talent i think it'd be good for you to kind of explain who she is but before we go on to that i guess that was the track i heard where i thought this is this is really hearing tom's range you know i think I've always thought listening to the enemy, you know, the enemy's music going back um, however long I've been listening to your tunes now, you know, 12, 13 years that um, and you might have a totally different view on this, but that you were always fairly within your comfort zone within the enemy. You could tell listening to the way that you enunciated certain things that you had a broader range, but you need you didn't need a big range for the enemy, particularly. It's what it, you, you gave it what it needed. But I think on this album, um, I think you're showing a little bit of more of what you can do. And also, the, I guess, there's an element of more vulnerability to your voice. And this duet, I think, is where that, that really comes out. So is is that something you felt singing this? Is is there a, Do you think there is a more of an element of vulnerability? Is this better show, showcasing your your voice? Do you think that's, 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 a fair, that's a fair comment to make? Yeah, maybe. I think as I've, um, as I've gotten older, I've become more comfortable with my, my voice. I was never really, um, I was never really particularly um, happy with my voice. Um, the only reason, as we touched on in the, the last podcast, the only reason that I was the singer is that there were no singers about, and I felt that Liam was such a good drummer that we needed to form a band, and so I started singing. And I never considered myself a proper singer. Um, always felt like I was winging it and it's only in recent years probably since I started touring acoustically and had to totally transform the enemy tracks to fit with acoustic arrangements um it's, it's only in those recent years that I've started to enjoy singing and realized that 
I mean, I think age is a factor as well, because when you're 20, if someone says, um, oh, why don't you sing that bit in falsetto? Well, because I'm a lad. Because get the beers. Mm. You know mm. what I mean? Falsetto. Mm. It's a girl's voice. Well, I'm not doing that. Who do you think I am? I'm wearing sambas. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> 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 so, like a ghoul. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Zipped all the way up to the top. Yeah, exactly. It, it just, it wasn't, I wasn't, comfortable exploring the range of my voice and and not just singing high singing low you know on this record i think i hit probably my highest note and probably my lowest note as well but also about when you're singing low there's a real tenderness to it when you're not belting something out you can be really expressive and and that that's quite exposing and revealing and you do feel vulnerable doing that um and and the other one that I was conscious of and was only barely just comfortable with at the time I was recording it was, was enunciation and pronouncing things perhaps differently to the way that I would in real life, certainly differently to how I would have done as a 20, you know, 20 year old in the enemy. Mm. Um, but there was call for it in tracks like readers wives. Uh, I'm singing that almost from a David Attenborough perspective of observing a lesbian couple. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, that required different enunciation and a different accent almost to my natural speaking voice or singing voice. Um, <clears throat> it's it's cleaner and, you know, more pronounced, but it, it was what the delivery required. And so I think there's a... There's an element almost of vocal acting on this record as well that was completely new territory for me. That's um, exactly what I was going to say, you know, vocal acting, because it is, you are, it's, that's what I think will, will strike people when they hear this. That's why I'm excited for people to hear this, because it is probably four or five different versions of yourself. This is not your typical solo album where it's, it's all you. It's a project and it's acting, you know. Just whispering. I mean that partners in crime you know that opens with me basically whispering and you know sort of it's a, it's a man's seedy secret fantasy mm. um, albeit about fingering and steaming windows up and referencing the film titanic it it, it that's a, a type of vocal delivery that i've never encountered before because the subject matter has never been there so how did you find Grace for the, you know, when you realised you this wanted this to be a duet and it's the only, to my mind, I think I'm pretty sure, the only duet on the album other than there's another guest vocalist I've been looking forward to talking to you about, but we'll save that for a minute. You know, you found Grace for this. How, where, where does she come from? You know, she's a she's quite a new talent. Um, so, yeah, t- tell us a little bit more about her and, and how you came to work with her. Uh, so Grace came onto my radar... I think the first gig that she supported me at was um, in Camden. I can't remember what the venue's called. Um, and the thing is, nobody nowadays can sing because the the generation of singers that exists now have come up with fantastic auto-tuning technology that even people just a little bit older, just my age, we didn't have, auto-tune was rubbish. Mm. And so you just had to sing in tune and you had to sing well and as well as you could. And uh, and now 
people are quite lazy. Most vocalists, you know, are, are relatively lazy and very rarely can deliver live what you'll hear on record. Mm. Uh, I remember finishing a sound check in Camden, sitting down and watching Grace sound check and thinking, I wish I could sing like that. She's just a tremendous force with vocals. Um, and she, she, de she delivers it with such passion and conviction, conviction as well. And, and um, so we, we kind of, I, I actually, I sent the song to a few female vocalists and said, can you sing a verse over this? Um, we want to, we want to find Shelley. Basically, I want to find Shelley's voice. Mm. Um, and obviously I knew, I mean, Grace, since that Camden show had supported me quite a few times and had always just been brilliant. Um, and so I knew that she would do it well. I knew she'd sing it well, but I didn't know if she would sound like Shelley because Shelley is just as important a character on this record as Nigel. And, you know, it, it could it could be the best vocal performance in the world, but if it didn't sound convincingly like someone that Nigel could be married to, if it, if you didn't feel uh, that there was a humanity to the performance, then it wouldn't work. Um, and so we got a lot of recordings back from from various vocalists, and I, I say I knew I knew Grace would have sung it well, but as soon as I heard it, I just knew that she sounded like Shelley. Mm, mm. What I didn't know until we got into the studio and I heard her put her her chorus vocals down with mine, and they're not backing vocals. They're in terms of the mix, they are completely level because it's it, that song is two sides of a coin, and it's it's Nigel and Shelley's viewpoint in equal perspective. What I wasn't expecting when she put those vocals down was how really sonically. I mean, you know. I'm talking hertz and frequencies here, how sonically her voice fitted with mine so perfectly. It's just they, they just occupy a space that, that complements the other voice so well. So I, I, I was really, really super happy that we, you know, we, we ticked every box we needed to with, with Grace and then some more. And I'm very grateful to her. Yeah, I mean, I think musically it's the centerpiece of the album and definitely an artist I'm going to go and check out. And, you know, I, I advise listeners to, to kind of check out too when, when you get a chance. Another guest I've been really looking forward to asking you about, because um, I make no bones about the fact I'm a massive Office fan, is you've only got bloody Finchie on the album, not once but twice. To be fair on Finchie, it's actually the actor Ralph Innocent, who obviously played, um, you know, uh, Brent's kind of frenemy in The Office, but also... Uh, has been in things like Game of Thrones more lately and um, lots of voiceovers for things like Talk Sport. He's on a lot of adverts, I think. Gaviscon, I know him from that as well. He's the, he's the voice of benefit fraud. And the voice of benefit fraud as well, yeah. Closing in on benefit fees. <laughs> We're closing in with all the tools at our disposal. Fucking hell, Finch, you leave me alone. Like, <laughs> bloody hell. Um, so you, you, how, how did you get... Ralph Innocent and you said he played the narrator I was trying to work out when I was listening to the album whether he was playing Bob 
I knew he wasn't playing Nigel, but you say he was the narrator. So he was a narrator on the album. But how did you how did you get him involved? Is he someone that you knew from from being in the Enemy and he'd come to Enemy shows, or how how did it how did it come about? From probably the first week that I started work on Nigel, I knew we needed a narrator because I knew we needed an external voice, someone who could place responsibility of Nigel with the listener to involve them and make it immersive and inclusive. Um, I knew that it would be a mutual friend of Nigel's. And for some reason, the moment that I realised that we needed that person, I imagined Ralph Innocent. And I don't know why, but he has been the mutual friend from the, the very moment that the mutual friend existed. And we... We asked, I, I, I don't know him. I, I don't really know anyone in, in comedy circles or, or acting circles. I don't really know any celebrities. Um, but I knew it was his voice and I, I didn't know how we could possibly get to him. Um, because that world of celebrity and stardom seems just impenetrable and unreachable. And, and Chasers is shut at the moment anyway because of lockdown. So you couldn't, you couldn't go and find him down Chasers on a Wednesday night. Exactly. He's not having a good pie in the gardeners. <laughs> so uh, I kind of had resigned myself to the fact that the mutual friend was going to be someone other than Ralph. And that at some point there would have to be a compromise in the making of Nigel. And there hadn't been anywhere else. I, you know, I, there was a point where, for budget reasons, we were discussing using synthesized strings instead of a real string section and the, we, we always managed to make it work we always managed to go no no no, let's get the real thing and um we i put I, I approached some other people before we approached ralph to see if they'd do it um mike skinner was one that i approached because i i really felt that the mutual friend needed to be a familiar voice Mm. So that when you hear it as the listener, it feels like the friendship is mutual, not just he's Nigel's friend, that you feel like, oh, I know him too. And, and Mike Skinner would have would have done that. Um, you know, he would have served that purpose. And I, I, I would have been super happy if, um, if Mike had been up for it. But I, I think he's a very busy man and he's involved in quite a few of the projects. And so Mike passed. And we had a couple of other options that we were looking into, but none that I was sold on. Mm. I had started stalking Ralph on social media. <laughs> um, I'd sent an email to uh, one of the accounts. When you see what email people have used to set it up with, sent an email to that. Uh, I sent him a couple of messages just saying, uh, I'm working on this project. I really want you to be involved. Um but I'd obviously just not been getting to the right place. Um, and so eventually I put out a little thing on Twitter and just said, could everybody go and make a bit of noise and copy Ralph Innocent in and say, I really want to work with him on something um, and see if we can get his attention. Mm. And my wonderful fans did just that. <laughs> Got his attention and he replied saying, this is the email address you need to get in touch with and and so we did and I sent over everything that the project was and 
quite quickly, uh, his people said, yeah, Ralph's interested. And um, we managed to do it remotely. So, because uh, obviously lockdown was a thing, um, we've managed to, to record it all um, in his home studio. And he, I've got to say as well, he's amazing. He, we, we did it over Zoom. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm at the, the final stages of this record. I know exactly how this needs to be delivered. Mm. And I was thinking, you know, this, this could take a while and a bit of direction. Having watched how to direct actors um, whilst working on the musical, I, I know sometimes it takes a bit of time to get the performance you want. And I don't know how, how much effort Ralph had put into reading the brief, but he pretty much nailed it on the first read. And we'd scheduled about an hour um, to record the few bits that were there. And quite honestly, I think some of the ones we actually went with might have been the first or the second time that he, he read the lines. Um, just a, It's a voice that kind of drips in experience, isn't it? And well-worn kind of life experience, I think, is what, is what comes through. Yeah, uh, I think... Um, I think the familiarity for a lot of people will come from his character in The Office. Um, and it helps that that's sort of the situation that we're in when we first meet him. You know, track three, we're on a sort of a work night out. It's not a work night out, but it's it's Nigel's birthday and he's sort of with work colleagues because that's what people's lives are like. Um, and so it figures that, you know, that, that a, a Finchy type character would be there. Mm. And, um, and yeah, he, he warns, he warns the listener. He says, you know, look, I know where, I know where this ends. Don't encourage him. I know he's a laugh. I know it's easy to get wrapped up when he's, when he's excited like this. And he's, you know, he's, he's clocked this, he's clocked this barmaid and he's looking at her thinking, oh, you know, I want want a bit of that. And it's exciting to be around, but just, don't encourage him because you'll feel responsible later on. And it, it's as though he's seen it all before with Nigel, you know, mm. and may, and maybe with more than Nigel, you know, maybe he's been there himself, but yeah, he does have this, this gravitas about him of, you know, look, don't, don't make a mistake. He somehow manages to be a sober voice. Yeah, and I think that's interesting you say that because I think there's also range in what he's doing. You know, the the Jack the Lad on the night out on track three. But I think by the end, I mean, there's some quite almost genuine sadness in his voice as he kind of narrates. Um, you know, I would say the the, the end we're not going to completely give away, and, and actually it's fairly, as you said, it's fairly open. But also it really works at that point um, as well. I feel. I mean, a bloody good narrator as well as a bloody good rep, right? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. I was I was going to ask you if you tried to show it, throw anything over the studio using over only your shoelaces, but if you did it over Zoom, then there was kind of no risk of that. And that's probably enough. That's enough office references for for one episode. I think the final thing I wanted to talk to you about was just, you know, we we've talked about the creation of the album, the themes, the musical themes, but also now you're at the point where you're releasing this, and you're actually releasing it in quite a, an unconven I would say an unconventional way. You know, you're not with a major label at the moment um and i feel like from the last chat we had you know you felt quite burned from that experience with with the enemy and what that did to you kind of creatively and where you ended up by the end but also you're not putting it out on streaming sites this is very much a, a physical release 
what made you decide to release it in the way that in the way that you are? You know, it sounds to me this is going to be harder to get hold of for, for fans than just opening up Spotify and, and listening to a stream, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, two two reasons. The first of which being, you've heard this record, and you've heard the language on it and the sexual themes, and you've heard the variety of instrumentation and arrangement techniques and the lack of radio friendliness. Uh, do you think if you sat down and pitched this record to any major label that they would be behind funding it? Probably not beforehand, no. I think <laughs> they'd need to hear it first, right? Yeah. So there was that. <laughs> um, but also the there was um just a desire to not go back into that world and i almost did um i so i started making nigel and then i stopped um because i kind of thought what's the point if i'm gonna make this i'm gonna need a record deal and i don't want a record deal i don't want to go and deal with those people again and and so after stopping for a while, I found myself writing for it and thinking, why am I writing this? You know, it's not going to go anywhere because I'm not going to make it because um, I'm not going to go deal with those people. And I thought, well, look, I I'm not writing it. It's writing itself. It's happening. And I don't seem to really be in control of that. I just keep finding myself at two in the morning writing these songs about Nigel. So maybe I should sort of get over myself and go and speak to a record label. And I reached out to um, to a person that we've worked with historically. And I said, I'm working on possibly the best thing I've ever written. I need someone to have some faith in that. I don't want to send any of the music out yet because it's very different and it's in a very early demo stage. I'd like to know if uh, th there is any support available at this early stage and if there's any interest. Mm. And what I got back completely ignored what I'd said and said, send some tracks over. Hmm. I thought, you people can't listen. And if you can't listen, you can't understand. And if you can't understand, there will be a point whilst I'm making this record, when you say you can't have the word masturbate eight words into a song, or you can't do it this way, or you can't do it that way. And I just remembered all the conversations, all the arguments in making those enemy records. Where's the first single? How yeah. big is the chorus? Yeah. And, and I knew, I already knew, you know, when you listen to RSVP, I've made that song extra long so that it could never be a single. <laughs> I, mm. I recognised, oh, this one's got potential to be manipulated into a way to market this record. And I've gone, no, I don't want it to be that. It's a storytelling device. Mm. Let's make sure it can never be misused. I do think it's quite popular. It almost sounds a bit like Pulp to me, that, yeah, that song. Yeah, there's definitely that sort of... I mean, Pulp, were, when you talk about the Britishness, they're one of few artists that I think have really nailed Britishness in an honest way. 
Mm. Um, so they were, you know, definitely were on the mood board. Um, but yeah, I, I just felt like a record label and the, the traditional music industry were incapable, not even unwilling, but just incapable of understanding what I was trying to do here. And so I had to figure out a, a different way to do it. And that's why it took two years, because if you if you try and make a record without that great big machine, then the, the creativity part is easier. There's less interference, there's more freedom, but the bit that pays for it all is much harder. And it's, you know, it's all been completely self-funded. It wasn't a particularly cheap record to make. It's got a string quartet on there. It's made in a 750-year-old chapel that's been converted into a state-of-the-art recording studio. It, mm. Mm. You know, it, to make it with no compromises and to exclude the, the industry was difficult, but I, I also feel necessary. I, I don't think that the record would exist as it does if I'd have gone down that other route. I think the interesting question here, and this is probably where, where it'd be good to kind of round off almost, is, you know, I, you know, having heard the album, I think it's a brilliant album, and I've said that a few times during this chat, and I think you, it will, demand will exceed supply, right? And this, this will be a kind of runaway independent success. So you don't strike me as a man, you know, you've, you've done what, you know, written one album in, you know, up to now in eight years, but I think you sound like you're on a bit of a real role creatively. There will be more to come. So what happens if a label now comes to you and says, well, actually, we do, you know, are, are you are you now putting the hex up on the music industry forever? You're gonna, are you going to do this all on your own forever? Or would there be something that would tempt you back into a bit more of a commercial relationship, even not with a major, but with a, you know, with a with maybe a, like a, sm a slightly smaller label? I, I don't want their money. I, I just do not want to eat the apple from the poison tree. If they could, I, I dare them. I dare them to turn up or phone me tomorrow and say, Tom, we'll pay your mortgage off. And God knows I'm struggling at the minute. I can't play gigs. It's been illegal since March. Mm. And I've got bills to pay. But I know that I can make some of the best music that I have ever made, if not the best music that I've ever made, working in this way, excluding them. And I, I also know that it's my weakness that means I don't work well with them. It's that I don't work well under pressure. I don't work well as a cog in the great big machine. It's not to say that there is anything inherently wrong with the great big machine. It's just not for me. And now I know that it would be idiotic of me to take their money and and and, and try to sell myself as a, a functional cog in that machine because I, I know it's it's pointless and it would destroy what we've just started, which is in the last two years, I've figured out how to make new music again. And not only has it worked, but it's been really fun. And I've thoroughly enjoyed the process and I'm extremely proud of what we've come out with. And so to mess with that now would just be crazy. What mm. we're going to do now is the same small group of people are going to keep doing this the way that I'm doing it. And we'll try and make sure that demand doesn't outstrip supply because I, I care far more about 
every fan that wants to hear it being able to hear it than I do it being a success story. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to stick a middle finger up to the industry and go, oh, look at me, I've sold out of all these copies and I didn't need you. They don't care. Uh, this is a, a drop in, in the ocean in their world. It, it's completely insignificant. But to me, this is my world and I'd love to invite as many fans into it as possible. And so we will, you know, with sales have gone, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking pre-orders. No one's heard a note of this yet. And pre-orders have gone very well, um, better than I expected. We're about to do a very limited run of vinyl, which is tricky at the moment because thanks to COVID and Brexit combined, getting vinyl manufactured mm. is very difficult. But There's a vinyl shortage, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we've managed to get 500 vinyl, which I'm going to individually number and sign. Um, and after that, and already, you can, you can just go to tomclarkmusic.com and get a digital copy, um, which you can just download, and it'll be on your phone or your computer. Or you mm. put that on a CD and put it in your car if you want. You can put it on a CD and burn it and give it to your mate if you want. And but it, it's um, it, it for me, I'd like to make it accessible. And, and I think what we are going to look into is we have to make these sales in order to pay for making the record. Once we've recouped, once the costs of recording the record have been met and covered, I think at that point we'll look into putting the record on Spotify or whatever the, the, the Apple equivalent is, um, not as a means to monetize it, because frankly it won't, you know, you get 0.001p per play or something and, it, you know, it's a, it's a niche record and I'm a niche artist and it, it's, it's never going to generate loads of money. But I'd like it to just be available for people. I'd like people to stumble across it um, and be surprised by it and mm. offended mm. by it or, or enamoured with it. You know, I, I think we'll look into doing that purely as accessibility um, once once the record's paid for itself. And I think we'll look into doing that with everything that I release and we'll see, we'll see if that works and we'll see if it's possible to work with Spotify and, and Apple and those big companies in that way. I know once before... I tried to release music for free on iTunes and we were told by iTunes unequivocally, no, you, hmm. you're not going to be able to do that. If we can't make money out of it, we're not interested in putting music out. So who knows how it will go with these big companies. Um, but I'd, I'd like to get it as many places as possible without, you know, without sacrificing anything creatively. But I don't think there is a, a creative sacrifice to be made once the record's paid for. It's just about distributing it to people. Hmm. I think the very final question I'll ask is, um, clearly this isn't the last album you'll produce. I'm going to put my cards on the table and say, based on kind of, I think you sound kind of a man rejuvenated musically through this. And I think we won't be waiting another for certainly five years. But is it the last we've heard from Nigel? Is it a character you've put to bed with this album? Or do you think there's there's... There's another chapter in that story. I don't know the answer to that yet. Um, several people have asked me that. And 
in 2009 when I wrote Be Somebody, I couldn't have imagined that 10 years later I would be exploring that character again. And, you know, and the character of Shelley from Technodancephobic on the first record. And, and, and it's not, I didn't, I didn't imagine I would be doing that. And I, my answer really is, at the moment, I can't imagine revisiting Nigel. I like where we've left him. I like that it's open-ended and ambiguous. And I think to pick up on that story might in some way devalue the Chronicles of Nigel, you know, for the sake of a new work. Mm. Uh, it's, um, it feels like the most complete thing I've ever made. And so I don't feel the need to explore it any further. But who knows how I'll feel in 10, 20, however many years. Uh, it's Right now, the answer is it feels very complete and I don't feel the need to. And I'm currently busy writing songs about aliens and pies. Hmm. So <laughs> it, it's not on my radar at the moment. So I guess when you figured it out and when you've written that album about aliens and pies, will you commit to coming back on the show again and giving us as in-depth a chat again as you have here? I would love to uh, to talk about the one that comes after Nigel, which is uh, diff- very, very different, but in some ways similar. It's, um, it's another concept record. It's... Uh, it's another record with a cohesive narrative from start to finish and a storyline. The way that it's different to Nigel, everything on Nigel was taken seriously. You know, everything was discussed at length and in specific detail before any work was done. Um, you know, it was really serious work. And Intergalactic Affairs, which is the record we're working on now, is a record that does not take itself seriously in the slightest. It, it deals with some serious issues, but in the most jovial way possible. It's uh, it, it, it's essentially about an alien invasion of Felix Stowe. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, musically, it's not as um, as involved as Nigel in terms of you know the. There's no string quartets on this one. It's much more simplistic and and just a more fun approach. Um, it introduces a new element, which there are bits of on Nigel, but which is a, a key component to this one, which is comedy. Um, it's very hard to insert comedy into music without it being cringeworthy. Um and I like the challenge of that. So that's um, that's a new component. But it's, yeah, it's um, it's going to be a fun one. So, sounds absolutely mad. And as always, leaving us on a cliffhanger, Tom. Always leaving the door ajar for, for a follow-up. So, yeah, thanks very much for, for coming on the show again. Great to chat. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll see you for your inter- intergalactic adventures in two years' time, I guess. I'll see you when the aliens get here. Yeah, exactly. Cheers, Tom. Cheers. That was a very in-depth interview again with Tom, wasn't it, Rick? I really enjoyed listening to that. And I mean, it's funny he's talking about Nigel, so I knew I knew where this kind of came from before. But I love that song, Nigel, from 1979, was it? I can't remember. Yeah, the making, date making now. plans for Nigel. Making plans for Nigel. Say, yeah. 
absolutely brilliant song. So it was quite interesting to see, to kind of hear how he's taken the story of Nigel and just built on it in such a crazy way. One of the things I'm going to have to say and rib you about before I even go into this was what made me laugh most was when you started comparing dating to marketing and how dating apps are like taking people down the marketing funnel and converting. It just absolutely cracked me up because in our day jobs, we obviously do marketing. So um, it made me, you know, very, very, very funny, Rick. It's a relevant reference because I think in the last interview, Tom's told me about how he does run do a bit of marketing on the side. He's got his fingers in in many pies. And yeah, you're right. It was a really in-depth chat and he, he can talk. And I think when you've got a medium like a podcast, if someone can talk, then I'm happy to stand back and, and let them do that. Because I think it's just, I think with a project like this, it's been such a labour of love for him. He's worked on it for two years. You know, it's it's the first thing he's done since the enemy but in reality he's not released an album if you count you know he's done one album in eight years you know the last enemy album was five years and then it was three years before that and um i think it's just good to hear you know such a talented guy just feels rejuvenated he felt so burned i think by what happened with the enemy the the kind of highs of that first album and then the lows of getting dropped within a couple of albums and feeling like their fan base was dwindling feeling like he was getting picked on by you know radio DJs other bands and um yeah I think just from the point of view of someone who's I guess charted his career from the very early days of the enemy it's just good to see him in in fine fettle I guess and you can tell you know he mentioned it at the beginning of the interview that that music industry is not for him and you can really tell that this is something that he's created that is very much what he wants to do and he isn't being dictated to by an industry um for because people need to be able to buy it and I'm sure people you know, I'm sure people are going to really enjoy it. And I think he might pick up some new fans that might never have, you know, The Enemy, and we've talked about this, I wasn't a massive fan of The Enemy, if I'm honest. It's not, it's just not my kind of music, some, some, some of it. But this, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I love music and I'm really into kind of the, you know, how music is created. And, and this to me is much more, you know, much, much more fun. So you, so you sort of make reference there, you know, you've heard the album now and it's quite eclectic, but eclectic, eclectic. <laughs> can I say eclectic? Yeah, eclectic. I should be able to say that. I've written it enough times in reviews. <laughs> um, so what, what, what do you make of the album now that you've heard kind of Tom's take? Because, you know, as he mentioned, you know, the, the album tells a story, but there's a lot going under the surface. There's a lot of Easter eggs in there. This takes a lot of kind of analysis to really get to. So now that you've heard his commentary, has it changed how you feel about it? Has it enhanced your listening experience with it? Oh, yeah, 100% changed it. Because as you know, that I don't always listen to lyrics as much as I probably should do. So I wasn't even aware of half of the things that he was you know half the things that he was talking about in the interview. I had no idea that that's what it meant. But he did also allude to that, didn't he? He said... He's not sure whether he's filling in the gaps that people might not necessarily have had, um, which is quite interesting in itself. So he's created an album with a story, but he's just given the extra layers of the story that might not necessarily have been that obvious. Um, so, yeah, it was it, it made a lot more sense to me, I guess. But in terms of the music, you know, I, I listen to. I'm very much more kind of about the music than the lyrics. Sometimes I don't know why that must be just the way my brain works, but it was interesting to hear you talking about some of the influences and I've picked up a few of the same ones, but a couple of different ones as well. Do you want me to run you through them? Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm just going to say in this interview, it was interesting that normally when you get an album, you have a press release that does all the cheating for you. It tells you who all the influences are and then you can chuck them at the artist without thinking about it. I had to go in blind and I was quite, I was quite pleased, frankly, that some of them were sort of spot on. And I think you've picked some out that are pretty spot on as well. 
Apparently so, yeah. Well, I like it's more funding it that way, isn't it? Um, so in Partners in Crime, I'll just kind of run them through. Partners in Crime, I actually felt like he's had a bit of Alex Turner to, to his voice. Obviously, he's from Coventry and Alex is from Sheffield and I'm from the Midlands as well. So there's a bit of bit of a northern twang to, to it. Um, I also got pulp vibes from there. But one of the one of the most interesting ones, I guess, and I don't think you'd thought about this one was so NEO Morricone massively came through to me in that song, which, you know, I love. And I love all the, you know, the Tarantino films and the soundtracks. So it was quite, quite good to kind of think about that. But it, as I said before, it was like listening to a musical, um, particularly Don't Need Nobody Else. That song I felt was just literally, I could be sat in a theatre listening to that. There's bloody sharps and flats going all over the place on the album, which I loved as well. And I think probably one of my favourite songs partly because I love the song that it reminds me of so much, um, is Back to the Box Room. And it just reminded me of Elton and Elton John, Benny and the Jets. I just love that piano. And I think you said that he'd, he'd said that it's on his mood board, right? As yeah, well, this is song. the thing. We had a chat after the interview, you know, we, we, we stopped recording and then as you usually do, you kind of wrap things up. And I was like, there was a few, I said to him, look, on air, there was a few things I didn't want to mention to you because I wasn't sure. And I was like, Elton John, he's like, funny, that was on the mood board, you know. So, yeah, you're absolutely bang on. And he did say Benny and the Jets as well. Wow. So I feel, you know, privileged to have got that right. <laughs> it's not a game, obviously, but there's one, to me. one that I'm going to throw, a red herring. <laughs> yeah, it is to you. One that I'm going to throw in there, a red herring. And I don't know how he's going to feel about this. I don't know how you're going to feel about this. And I don't know how the listeners are going to feel about this. But I heard it, so I'm going to say it. Um, on Sue, what did you do? I I just heard Robbie Williams, the song Feel. And I actually, not really massive Robbie Williams fan, if I'm honest, but I actually really loved the song Feel. Uh, it, it kind of transformed Robbie in from something a bit cheesy to something a bit more credible in terms of music. I'm going to be hated for saying that, I'm sure, but that's what I think. I, I've lost track of whether Robbie Williams is credible or not, because obviously... When he was in Take That, he was seen as a bit of a boy band star. Then he kind of got involved in Britpop and became mates with Liam and then fell out with Liam. And then the solo stuff was good to start off with, went a bit cheesy. And now has he kind of come full circle and is cool again? I don't know. I get in touch think with he's a bit of a parody of himself, isn't he? I mean, I guess you, you do put him in the legend category, though, don't you? He is one of the best performers this country's ever produced. Yes, his musical output is probably a bit variable, but I'd put, I'd put feel in the classic column, definitely. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad I'm not going to get completely shot down with that. Uh, but yeah, and, th- and that was it. But generally, as someone who is into music, yeah, loved it. And I, I guess as always with Tom, there's a bit of a cliffhanger at the end. He's already talking about his next solo album, something to do with aliens and space and the Earth being invaded. It's, it, literally on paper, it sounds bizarre and bonkers, but it does make it just makes sense. Maybe we'll get him back on for a third episode, Side C. <laughs> the Tom Clark story and look I'm always happy to because he's he's a great interview you know and um always well worth a listen to his music so um I guess that's probably where we can wrap up for this week I guess or maybe we should give a little bit of a nod to what have we got coming up sort of elsewhere in this series we're back now year out the game we're back in we've got our first interview in the can um what can listeners expect from the rest of the series sarah yeah so actually at the same time as tom got in touch with you a different tom got in touch with me so for a couple of years now actually i've been trying to to pin down the paddingtons um we talked about this before in a previous episode the paddingtons were one of those bands that were very much around um the the kind of grot and roll era and that scene which was such a big part of both of our lives 
Um, and yeah, he got in touch saying, I mean, he's got a new single out. So I guess he was kind of looking for opportunities to promote that. And that's really another reason that kind of spurred us to get back to back to it, really, because I thought, yeah, absolutely still want to get those guys on. So I, I had a chat with Tom and Lloyd a couple of days ago. Uh, and so that's going to be that's going to be coming out soon. Um, and we've also got another thing in the pipeline, haven't we, Rick? But I don't know if we really want to talk about that right now, just in case, you know, you never know. Yeah, a, a few irons, irons in the fire, I guess I'd say. But yeah, we're fir- we're firmly back, aren't we? Let, let's tell the listeners that we're firmly back now. We're doing a run of episodes, and let's just ride it till the wheels fall off, right? Exactly. But as always, we do want to hear from you. So if you have any feedback or any questions or suggestions, get in touch with us at demotapespod at gmail dot com or on Twitter or Instagram at demotapespod. And while you're listening, if you're listening on iTunes, if you could give us a five star rating, that would really, really help us. You know, once once upon a time, we were number 13 in the UK podcast music charts. So let's try and get back there, Rick. For about 13 minutes, I think it was. But yeah, we're, 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 we're keeping it. But we that, were there. Right? But we yeah. were there. So, it's, like when, you know. it's like when Southampton were top of the Premier League for a day, you know. Southampton fans will have that framed on their wall, won't they? Well, so that, that's I'm going to get it framed on my wall. So let's try and get back there. So I guess while we go off and get that frame, that's where we'll uh, we'll leave the episode. Uh, so all there is to say, thanks for listening, and we'll yeah we'll see you on the next episode. Cheers, guys. Bye.